Well, in our, our highly polarized society, a society that's plagued by tribalism and obsessed with identity politics and, and more broadly with, with an identity group mentality, an identity group mentality that, that divides, that separates you from those who are somehow different than you and leads to viewing those who are not in your group as being other, as being less than you. I wonder how this culture has affected the way that you view others in the world around you. From those that you pass in the grocery store, to those who aggravate you on the roads, to those in your neighborhood or on social media, to those you see in the headlines and the news stories, politicians, world leaders, celebrities, terrorists. What judgments do you make of the people around you? Specifically, as a Christian, do you find yourself viewing certain groups of people as being beyond the reach of God's saving grace? Or put differently, for whom did Jesus come? For what kind of people? What is it that qualifies a person to enter into a relationship with Jesus? I invite you to turn with me to, to Mark chapter 7, verse 24. You can find it on page 42 in the second half of the Pew Bible. I'm going to begin by reading the first seven verses. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord to you. And from there, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Let us pray. Father, having heard your word, grant us understanding that we may know you and come and fall down at your feet in faith. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, having just engaged in a dispute with the scribes and Pharisees, with the, the religious leaders of Israel, rebuking their practice of revering man-made traditions above the word of God, from there, it says, that is from the region of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples take a trip to the Mediterranean coast, to the region of Tyre and Sidon, about 35 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee, into what is modern-day Lebanon. While Tyre and Sidon were originally part of the promised land that was given to the people of Israel, by, by this time in history, it was, it was primarily Gentile territory. It was not even part of the same Roman province that included Galilee and the rest of Judea, but was instead part of the, the Syrian province that extended much further north and east. We're not told why Jesus made this trip up north, though you might recall that the last time he left his home base in Capernaum, in the previous chapter, he was calling his disciples to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. 
Now, that, that retreat was derailed by thousands from Capernaum who chased them along the shoreline, leading to the feeding of the 5,000. Perhaps this is, is another attempt to, to get away for the sake of rest. As it says, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, that is a demon, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. There's no indication that she had witnessed any previous miracles, this being the, the first recorded trip of Jesus up north. There's no indication that, that she had heard his voice in person. It simply says that she heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Having heard of him, she believed in him and came to him, as so many of us have likewise done. For any here who, who are still waiting for a miraculous sign before believing in Jesus, or who are waiting for a voice from heaven before you will come and give your life to Him, understand that you have already been given all that you need to come. For you have heard of Him and of His call for all to come. So come. The language that, that's used to describe her coming to Jesus is the same language that was used to describe the coming of Jairus to Jesus. Jairus, the, the Jewish ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum back in chapter 5, who fell likewise at Jesus' feet, imploring Jesus to save his little daughter from death. Two people from very different ethnic and religious and geographic and cultural backgrounds. Two people with very different social standings. One, a Jewish religious leader in Israel. The other, a Gentile pagan woman, referred to by Matthew as a Canaanite, the ancient enemy of God's people. And yet, both hear of Jesus. Both come to Jesus. Both fall down at His feet. As all people, at all times, in all places must likewise do. Never mind your ethnic, religious, geographical, or, or cultural background. Never mind your social standing. All must bow before Jesus as Lord. Now, having come, the exchange between Jesus and this Syrophoenician woman is, is definitely surprising, a little bit confusing. She begs Jesus to heal her daughter, in verse 27, and He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Come again? What's going on here? Is Jesus insulting this desperate woman? No. Now, it's true that the Jewish rabbis of this time sometimes referred to Gentiles, that is to non-Jews, as dogs, as unclean animals. But as this exchange unfolds between the Jewish Messiah and this Gentile woman, and from the broader context in which this took place, we can see that Jesus is in no way adopting or endorsing that mindset. He, he's challenging it. Remember that just a few verses earlier, back in verse 19, Mark included the comment that, that Jesus had declared all foods clean, removing one of the main barriers but preventing Jews and Gentiles from establishing meaningful relationships, the dietary restrictions. Declared all foods clean. We're only a few verses away from Jesus having compassion on a great crowd of Gentiles in chapter 8. No, this, this exchange between Jesus and this woman is presented as an opportunity for Jesus to teach about 
who is qualified to enter into a relationship with Him? The answer being, all who have faith like she did. I see this as less about testing her faith and more about establishing a context for her to demonstrate that faith. See that before in chapter 5 with the, the woman who was suffering from a hemorrhage. A context was given to her to demonstrate her faith. Also bear in mind that this seems to be a, a bit of an enacted parable. The implication appears to be that Jesus, having entered into a private residence for rest, is dining at a table with his disciples, and she comes begging for his blessings. Matthew, in Matthew 15, records more of the exchange than, than Mark does. And from Matthew's record in Matthew 15, we see that at first, Jesus doesn't answer her at all. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away. She is crying out after us. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So you see the question that's being posed here. For whom did Jesus come? Who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Matthew continues, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. See her persistence. And he answered her, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. See her persistence and her humility. At the feet of Jesus, she has no problem taking on the posture of a begging dog. In contrast to the posture of the self-righteous, entitled Pharisees with whom Jesus has just been disputing. That's the contrast being made. Recall how the dispute with the Pharisees in the preceding verses ended. Jesus showed that all people are unclean before God. And thus all people are in desperate need, not just of the forgiveness of our sins, but of the new clean hearts available to all who place their trust in Christ. You see here that saving faith is a humble faith, a begging faith eager to accept whatever God's blessings He will grant to undeserving sinners like us. Saving faith is a humble faith. Saving faith is not presumptuous, and yet it is persistent. It's not presumptuous, but it is persistent. Notice her faith is confident, not only in Jesus' ability to save, but in His willingness and desire to save those who come to Him with humility and persistence of faith. Matthew's account includes Jesus' praise of her faith, saying, O oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So then it, it, what we see here is that in contrast to the, the religious leaders of Israel who refused to believe, and in contrast to the disciples of Jesus who, who struggled to understand who Jesus was and why He came, we see a Gentile hears and understands and shows great faith. So yes, the, the Messiah came first to the Jewish people. He came to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But He did not come for them alone. For He came for all people everywhere. For He came to save the world. At the feet of Jesus, at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. We are all equally undeserving of His mercy and grace. But through faith in Him, we are made the children and people of God. Verse 31. 
Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of the Decapolis. So as you can see from this map, to go from the region of Tyre in the far north there, the northwest, to go from the region of Tyre through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, specifically to the region of the Decapolis there in the, the lower right, it's quite a circuitous route to go further north just to go further southeast. We're not told why he took this route, but, but given what comes before and, and what comes after, it appears that Jesus is simply choosing to spend more time ministering in Gentile territory, making a statement about who he has come to save. So now he, he is once again east of the Sea of Galilee, as you see there, in the region of the Decapolis. That's where he left, you'll recall, the Gerasene demoniac in chapter 5. Having healed that, that demoniac from his possession by legion, he, Jesus commissioned him to, to go to your, home, your friends and, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Chapter 5, verse 19. Now, now, based on the size of the great crowd that gathers here in the Decapolis as Jesus arrives, presumably that first Gentile disciple had done as he was told. Verse 32. The people brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. The Greek phrase that's translated here as had a speech impediment could also mean, and I think does, was entirely mute. The same word is used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, 6 that, uh, to translate the Hebrew word for mute, as, as Robert read earlier from Isaiah 35. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Verse 33, and taking the man aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And I don't know about you. I don't really like the idea of putting my fingers in anybody's ear or putting my hand on anybody's tongue, but not Jesus. He had no issue with this. It's a picture of his willingness to come into contact with our filth, our earwax, our spit. It's a picture of his willingness to touch us in the place of our disgrace. It's also likely a form of sign language, informing the, the deaf and mute man of, of what Jesus is about to do to unstop his ears to loosen his tongue. Jesus speaks to us on a level and in a manner that we can understand. Verse 34, And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to the man, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Ephatha being Aramaic for, for be opened. Recall that Jesus likely and primarily taught in Aramaic, not in Greek or in Hebrew. Verse 35, the man's ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Back when Jesus began his public ministry in chapter 1, he charged the demons that he cast out not to speak about him. And then in chapter 5, upon healing Jairus' daughter, Jesus charged the family not to tell anyone. So why these calls for silence? We're never told explicitly. 
But from the way that is presented throughout Mark, within those first two Jewish contexts, it appears that, that Jesus didn't want the Jewish people's faulty expectations about their coming Messiah to confuse them about why he had come. For he hadn't come to save them from the Romans, he had come to save them from their own sinful hearts. Now here in a Gentile context, it may be that that he doesn't want them to think that miraculous healings were the reason why he had come into the world. Or it may simply serve to emphasize that, that those who have been touched by Jesus cannot help but to speak about him to others, even if told not to. Notice what it is that they zealously proclaim about him. He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 35, the prophecy there. One commentator put it this way, Ironically, while Israel's leaders are hard-hearted, those outside of Israel are recognizing the Jewish Messiah has come. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. A Gentile is given ears to hear and a tongue to speak. There's something else to note here. Notice that that unlike the the preceding miracle that involved the Syrophoenician woman, and unlike most of the other miracles that we've seen in Mark, here there's not much of an emphasis placed on the faith of those in need. In fact, nothing is said about the disabled man's faith at all. And that's a cue. That's a cue that this account is being recorded because it emphasizes something else. And notice that unlike the immediately preceding miracle, where Jesus simply announced that the woman's daughter back at her home was healed of the demon in an instant from a distance, here there's this drawn-out description of Jesus touching and healing the man. That too is a cue that something other than faith and Jesus' power are being emphasized. Something is being pictured here. And that that, that something that's being pictured becomes clearer as we we step back from the passage and observe the the broader context. The next 30 verses, chapter 8, verse 1 through 30, those 30 verses parallel the preceding 64 verses in many ways. Let Let me show you a repeated pattern. In chapter 6, verse 30, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Then we saw Jesus cross the lake by walking on the water. Then, in the passage we looked at last week, we saw a dispute with the Pharisees. Then we saw a discussion about bread, specifically the children's crumbs with the Syrophoenician woman, followed by this healing of a deaf and mute man. And in verse 37, we see the confession that Jesus does all things well. Next, next verse, chapter 8, verse 1, we will see the feeding of the 4,000. Then in verse 10, Jesus and his disciples will again cross the lake. Then we'll read of another dispute with the Pharisees. Then that will be followed by another discussion about bread, followed by another healing, this time of a blind man, followed finally by Peter's confession to Jesus, you are the Christ. That confession serves as a turning point in Mark's gospel. First, immediately followed by Jesus' first direct explanation that he had come to die and to rise again. Now, immediately preceding these passages, immediately preceding chapter 6, verse 30, was the account of Herod trying to figure out who Jesus is. 
See, John the Baptist raised from the dead. Is he the prophet Elijah? Is he just another prophet of God? Who is Jesus? Thus, everything from that point onward, from chapter 6, verse 30 onward, is building to Peter's confession, you are the Christ. And this repeated pattern of six events, it, it emphasizes that, that fact, this, this culminating in Peter's confession. And it also then helps us to see the significance of the parallel verse of chapter 7, verse 37, the healing of the mute man. You see, his tongue was loosed so that he might zealously proclaim to others that Jesus is the Christ who does all things well. If you have been touched by Jesus, then he has given you ears to hear that you may understand, and he has given you a tongue to speak so that you may zealously proclaim to others that he is the Christ who does all things well. Has your tongue been loosed? Are you proclaiming to others that Jesus is the Christ? If not, then have your ears not been unstopped? Have you not been touched by Jesus? Moving on to the repeated pattern again, chapter 8, verse 1, the pattern begins to repeat. It says this, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now, three days, and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now, since the middle of chapter 6, Mark has consistently recorded the names of places where Jesus has gone, from Gennesaret to the region of Tyre and Sidon to the Decapolis. We'll see this again in verse 22, as Jesus comes to Bethsaida, and verse 27, as he comes to Caesarea Philippi. Thus, every indication is he's still in the region of the Decapolis at the beginning of chapter 8. He's still in Gentile territory. I think it's even clearer in Matthew's account as the crowd who was fed here in, 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 in the feeding of the 4,000 is the same crowd who just celebrated the healing of the mute man. And in Matthew's account, it says they glorified the God of Israel. The God of Israel. That, that's not the way that Jews are described as worshiping God in the Gospels, but rather Gentiles. So here's my point. While the feeding of the 5,000 was predominantly, if not entirely, of a Jewish crowd, the feeding of the 4,000 seems to be a, of a predominantly, if not entirely, Gentile crowd. And he's offering to the Gentiles what he's already offered to the Jews. And as he had compassion on the Jews because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Chapter 6, verse 34. So now he has compassion on the Gentiles who are likewise like sheep without a shepherd. So how then did he shepherd them? How did he feed them? Well, what was explicit in the feeding of the 5,000 is implicit in this account. He taught them many things. Jesus says that this crowd has been with him now for three days. What do you suppose that meant? What was he doing with them for three days? Same thing he did everywhere he went, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 15. This is the primary way that Jesus cares for his sheep. It is through his word, through his teaching, that he leads us and feeds us and protects us. But now the good shepherd of his sheep is concerned for their physical hunger. In the feeding of the 5,000, he instructed his disciples to give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. They had nothing in their hands to give, showing 
our inadequacy to serve him apart from what he places in our hands to offer to others. Here, he simply presents the need to the disciples. In verse 4, it says, And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? It's a, it's a pretty shocking reply. We're barely 50 verses past that last miraculous feeding of 5,000 or more in a desolate place. And yet, they don't know how Jesus is going to miraculously feed, feed this crowd? Now, admittedly, we don't know how much time has passed. It's quite possible that a number of months have passed since that first feeding. It's possible that, that there have been similar occasions in the interim when Jesus didn't supernaturally make food appear for hungry people in the wilderness. That may be the case. But again, the context here leading up to, to Peter's confession in verse 29 is clearly emphasizing how slow of heart the disciples were to understand who Jesus was the all-sufficient shepherd of his sheep. Verse 5, So he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowds to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before the people. And they ate and were satisfied. You see Jesus filling the hands of his disciples with exactly what those around them needed. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. All that we have to offer the spiritually needy people around us is the bread that Jesus provides us to give. First and foremost, the bread of life, the word of God. Like those first disciples, this is a lesson that, that we must learn over and over again. We need the repetition. What every person you meet needs more than anything else you might offer them, they need most of all, is Jesus. And if you will serve Him in this way, He will use you to satisfy their spiritual needs. Sinclair Ferguson puts it beautifully, saying this, Jesus is able to take our inadequate resources we bring to him, like, like the seven loaves and the, and the few fish, or, or the five loaves and the, and the two fish from chapter 6. Jesus is able to take the inadequate resources we bring to him. He's able to bless them. He's able to use us as the instruments of taking his blessings to a needy world. Although our resources be small, and although we be few in number, the Lord Jesus is not limited in power. Indeed, he chooses to take the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. Mark continues. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Do you remember how many baskets full they took up in the feeding of the 5,000? Twelve. Now, it's speculated that, that those twelve baskets in the feeding of the 5,000 pointed to Christ's ample provision for the twelve tribes of Israel, while the seven baskets taken up here, the feeding of the 4,000, point to Christ's ample provision for the Gentiles, with the number seven symbolizing fullness and completion in Jewish thought, for Jesus had come to save the entire world. Verse 9, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, Matthew says they went to the region of Magadan. 
We don't have a record of where Dalmanutha or Magadon were located. Uh, these could be alternative names for Magdala, also known as Mignal Nunya. Sounds kind of like Dalmanutha, Migdal Nunya. It's a suburb of, of Tiberias on the, on the west bank of the Sea of Galilee. So, so the point is, he, he's concluding his ministry, his ministry journey throughout Gentile territory, having offered to them the same life-giving bread that he's been offering to the Jews. So for whom did Christ come? For what kind of people did he come? For sinners. And what is it that qualifies someone to enter into a relationship with Jesus? Faith. So eat and be satisfied by this bread of life that is offered to you today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us, by which you feed us, by which you lead us, by which you equip us and send us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and tongues to zealously proclaim your gospel to others, that they too may be eaten and satisfied. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.